Culture eats strategy for lunch, and informed cultures drive decisions and inspire action. At the Data Culture Podcast, we talk with execs, visionaries, and data experts so that you may move from idea to outcome in your own data culture journey. Welcome to the Data Culture Podcast. My name is Sid Atkinson, data culture innovator and consulting leader with over 21 years in data. And I'm Lee Harper, a machine learning practitioner with over 10 years of experience in machine With us today is Ed Kelly. Ed Kelly has over 40 years experience in business and information technology. He currently serves as data governance consultant at the Texas Secretary of State. Previously, he was the chief data officer for the state of Texas at the Department of Information Resources. In that role, he worked with state agencies and institutions of higher education to collaboratively develop data policy standards and best practices to improve data governance and data management statewide. Ed was also responsible to seek out opportunities for data sharing across government agencies to increase government transparency through the use of the Texas Open Data Portal and improve the overall data management and analysis. Prior to joining DIR, he held positions with the Texas Department of Agriculture as Chief Administrative Officer and was with the Texas Department of Public Safety as the CIO. Additionally, Ed's experiences include a variety of roles and responsibilities in the private sector at State Street Bank and Trust Company, Fidelity Investments, Dell Computer, Dell Financial Services, and Unisys. Ed, welcome. Well, thank you very much, Sid. It's happy to be here. So, Ed, you have been the CDO of one of the biggest states in the country, ranked 12th in the world if it was its own, uh, in GDP, if it was its own country. That's quite a journey. How did you land there? Well, you know, you, a little bit of my bio talked a bit about it. The, you know, I think my background is both on the business side of the table and also on the technical side of the table. CDOs today have to have a balance of understanding. It's not just technology that drives the agency or drives the data uh, programs in any particular state. It's the people side of it and the procedures and the process that has to come into play to be successful. And I think my background and experience and being in the business areas and working, uh, again, alongside the technology groups to you know, achieve success, as well as being a service provider in a technology role, having my own customers and doing that. So having both of those experiences in that long list of companies I've worked for for 40 plus years has helped me be a more successful change agent in the CDO role, because that's really what it was. When we came on board back in 2015 and I was selected for the statewide data coordinator position, because it was even you know before a chief data officer role, it was, it was kind of a trial basis, I'll call it. Uh, the legislation that passed the bill, House Bill 1512, I believe, uh, created the statewide data coordinator position, but the actual position had a sunset on it. It was only good for a couple of years. So I, I took the position knowing that and hoping that I could build out the program and expand upon it so that future legislation would actually maybe codify and, and keep the role going. So uh, again, ex work experiences, both from a business and technical perspective, I believe helped me to become successful, not just me, but also the team. I mean, the people that worked with me yeah. uh, on the overall program. What, what is your perspective on the series of insights that led to Texas creating that position? Because when we first started working together, you had well, you were in that newly minted statewide data coordinator role. Right. And so there, there are steps that happened. You know, what perspective do you have on those steps that led Texas to realize, oh, I think we need this? 
Well, other states had already set up a, a chief data officer for the state. I believe Colorado had one, Arizona had one. So they were the kind of the, the first ones out there. Uh, Gardner, at the time, back in, in the 2014, 2015, thought that this was a new role coming up, an up-and-coming position that uh, in institutions of education and agencies and corporations had to start thinking about because they knew back then that the data was an extremely important piece. If you look at the CIO, their role is is different than the CDO. Theirs is more of that custodian, keeping the lights on, making sure the systems are up and running, patched, and all of that. Um, so it didn't really fit neatly into that CIO role. So creating this particular position was kind of the first and foremost, you know, with the Gardner people thinking this is a good idea. And then I had some great leadership at DIR who thought it was a great idea as well. They're the ones that worked closely with the legislative uh, session, uh, one of the bill authors, to get this position out there. Um, interesting enough, the next session that's coming up, this one that we're in right now, there there's a bill out there proposed to create a chief privacy officer for the state. So you're starting to see now that there's a chief information officer, uh, excuse me, a, a information security officer, there's a, data, a chief data officer, and a chief privacy officer. So each one of those positions, as they continue to um, get support from the legislature and the governor, uh, helps to continue to focus on disciplines that the state really should to have an individual responsible for at all. And yet the the uh, the interesting thing is we can all read the same information, i.e., you know, maybe that report from Gartner that talks about, you know, this role, this need, and then implement that in very different ways. Mm -hmm. Because then how Texas did that journey first with the statewide data coordinator role and then eventually CDO is very different than, say, um, some other states where, um, you know, one state in particular on the East Coast, it was, you know, it was a tiger with no teeth. Right. right. So how did Texas realize that that, um, you know, through the work either, you know, in your early days as statewide data coordinator or even before, realize that this was something, a role that needed the ability to impact and drive change? I think overall they recognize the importance of data. So the legislators, you know, recognize it's not just the person that they need to hire for this to centralize the responsibility. But it is the fact that data was becoming extremely important, and that's the way lots of the representatives and senators want businesses to be run. They are representatives and senators, business people, mm -hmm. and they run their business based on data, lots of them. So I think taking that into effect of how government can do a better job of managing information and data to service their constituents better. So the impetus around, I think, this was some really... Um, forward-thinking people who thought, hey, this would be a good thing for Texas to do in establishing best practices and standards and teaching others to be successful in managing an overall data program. So you mentioned that teaching a lot and, and there's uh, goes into teaching. You know, I, I have something I've learned. I now am going to iterate on that that learning and then go. And so there's a whole lot of cultural aspects to that. You know, what were things that as you started to roll out your learnings from statewide data coordinator, then as CDO, 
there's change. Mm-hmm. There's change. And so you mentioned like teaching, you know, and the teaching is one way to drive that adoption. So in the early days of that, what were you seeing as the main things that either agencies were asking you for or pushing back when you were when you and the team were pushing you're trying to try to implement? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, first off, the team was me. Yeah. So you know, I didn't have anyone else. So to begin with when we first started. I think the benefit uh, that DIR saw in me was the fact that I was a known quantity within state government. Mm -hmm. I had held previous positions, leadership roles. And it was really, you know, when I called someone and when I knocked on their door, I was more than enough welcomed in. They they didn't always accept the fact of what I was trying to sell them. Uh, Matter of fact, a couple of times I got the big, you know, hand in the face. We don't need you right now. (laughs) But I think overall, it's one of those, I I have adopted this little phrase and I use it a lot in why I was successful. Patience and persistence is extremely important in government. If you're not patient, you're not going to be a success in government. Have to recognize there's sessions, there's budgetary constraints. Everybody's not sitting around waiting to do extra data work. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you have to be persistent. And if you're not, you're the only one that's running your program. And if you're not persistent with that, it's going to die on the vine. So there were times it was difficult. And I've been in situations before in a previous life where I was selling business continuity services Mm -hmm. at a bank that I worked at in Boston. And just a quick story on that, there was a gentleman in international trade banking who basically threw me out of his office and thought that I was basically wasting his time. Went back to my manager, told him about this, and he said, Ed, he goes, there's many other people in this bank that you can work. Go to the next person. But I was persistent in trying to get this individual to work with me, but he just didn't want to until there was a fire on his office in the middle of the night on a Sunday. And international trade banking is a very profitable, revenue-generating part of the bank, and I walk into a fire scene. And at that point, he recognized the importance of what I was trying to sell him, which was continuity services and planning. And uh, a lot of what he did uh, after the fire with me and being a, a real proponent and a supporter of what I did helped me to continue to grow. And, you know, fast forward to the, to the data programs and statewide data program, sure, there were people that just didn't want to deal with it at the time or didn't think it was a value at the time. But there were some great supporters. And those individuals were the ones that helped me become profits and sell the idea, sell the concept of it, why it's valuable, the value proposition of posting data on the open data portal, the value proposition of having a good program with best practices and standards, the value proposition of adopting kind of the processes of quality management, and, and metadata management and other pieces that we talk about or we did talk about when I was in that particular role. So I think, again, it, it's not an easy path for anybody yeah. who's a chief data <laughs> officer, let me tell you. Um, but I think if you're, if you're willing to go the distance and you'd find those individuals that will be with you along the way, and then all of a sudden now it's everybody's involved because there's nobody saying no. Nobody's saying, oh, I don't really need this data stuff. Why do I need this data stuff? You try to say that to someone over at the legislature, they're not gonna, that's not going to be taken very well. So you have to look at the importance of what you're trying to manage because the data itself 
if you don't do it right, if you don't manage it correctly, you're putting uh, inaccuracy potentially out there, mm-hmm. and your constituents are going to lose faith in what you're trying to do, and the leadership are going to lose faith, and you'll be looking for new opportunities, as they say. Exactly. Yeah. So I've, I've worked with a number of kind of younger people who are that self-assured in government. And they often run into the challenge from the opposite end of the spectrum. You're describing it here from the the executive level. How do I get a buy-in across, you know, maybe other agencies or other people? They're often very educated, very keen. They want to be using the latest techniques. They want to be using cloud data. They want to be using Power BI. They want to be using AI to do their things. And they often run into roadblocks from their managers. Hey, we just we don't do that here. That's not how we do things here. What advice do you have for someone like that of how they can influence things from the other end of that spectrum? Uh, that's a really good question. And, you know, having children who are in their 30s right now, and obviously, as you've described it, Lee, that, you know, they're they're that way. Why can't we do that? Why can't we do that? Yeah. I think if you are a younger person and, and you're interested in getting involved in this, you, you need to look at what use cases that you have purview over that you might be able to offer up as suggestions to uh, do a proof of concept or work with the data officer or the data leadership team within, uh, and I'll use the agency uh, specifically. Sometimes getting, I, I like to say that, you know, everybody to some degree is from, you know, Missouri, the show me state. Show me that it works, <laughs> right? Show me what you're going to do with it. And if you, in fact, can, can you know, if you're, if you're a millennial or if you're, you know, entering the workforce, you have all these great ideas. You've got to get a and make sure your manager is a supportive individual because everything has to cascade up to an executive level from an approval perspective. But I think getting involved and offering and volunteering to be a part of those efforts, and then showing the results of those efforts. Um, not going to say it's a hundred percent guaranteed that to be you know voted on and moved from a, a proof of concept to more of a production thing, but at least you're making a mark and stating your your interest in the future technology leveraged to support the data program overall. So, yeah. and, and it's it's interesting that you say because that that is almost one hundred percent matched to the way Adam Leonard. It was our, the second episode, third episode, second episode, as Lee's telling me. Um, his second episode, that was exactly what he mentioned, is that he had an idea, raised his hand, went down, and was lucky enough to have a mentor and a boss at the time that said, oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. Let's go pursue it and yep. do it. And so what I'm hearing is, you know, strongly advocating for, you know, if you have ideas, speak up. There's quite a few people, you know, in gov- you know, in the leadership in government that will support, you know, you trying something new. May not go always as far and as fast as you want it, but yep. you... You know, there's um, a lot more innovation that happens than most people from the outside think. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just to comment again, you know, I think there's been a shift in, you know, I'll call it not the leadership. When I say leadership, I typically mean the the people and the legislator. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, executives in, they're looking for innovation ideas. They're looking for ways to do it better. And innovation is, you know, a part of a kind of a principal thing. It's a very simple thing that I've talked to a lot of people about, you know, SIT. So every director, every executive has a strategic responsibility to their role. They also have an innovative responsibility to their role. And they have a tactical 
SIT. Mm-hmm. So how much of your time are you spending in the T, the tactical side, mm-hmm. fighting fires, addressing things, you know, all of that? Doesn't leave you much time, obviously, sometimes to do the strategic thinking or even the innovative component to it. One of the things I did when I worked at the Department of Agriculture is I required my staff to spend a a portion of their time looking at the S and the I Mm -hmm. in their job description, making sure they could put some time in there. And if you have a manager who is open to ideas, that's where they come from. Because there's a lot of great ideas out there, but if you don't speak up, as you said, Lee, you, you know... It gets buried and maybe it never even gets heard. So mm-hmm. part of that is recognizing, and as your your program grows, you do maybe less of the tactical side of it, and you can maybe spend a little more time on the strategic and the innovative side. So, well, and and going back to something that you said earlier, time, what you said just now, back to that patience um, and persistence mm-hmm. that you mentioned, patience and persistence in talking with others works when you have a vision. Yes. And the same thing as you're saying here is that, you know, the I know better what to do with that S and that I when there's a vision. And and you mentioned turning people into prophets. And when you cast a strong enough vision that a central piece of that can remain true even when people layer their own language on top of that. And so that was those are some big learnings that I think would be awesome to share. So yeah. there was there was a specific program language that you were using. So how, how did you land there as a way? You know, was it just a way to label the patience and the persistence? Or Yeah, you know, I, I think really having a brand, having a, 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 a image, whether it be you know a logo or whether it be a mantra mm-hmm. or whether it be something that can tie it together. You know, you always talk about these elevator pitches. You know, what do you do for a living? Tell me what you do. Well, Having these things that you can basically be, share with people and be consistent in your messaging. So as time goes along, you know, you're not changing every month your, your, your vision or your mission. You, you basically need to develop them so that people understand. I understand what they're trying to do. I understand where they're trying to go with it. And I can see a roadmap. I can see how they're going to get there. And putting some wrapper around that helps people rally around it if they're Mm -hmm. supporters and helps people understand it if they're not supporters and maybe getting them to a point to be a part of the program after after you kind of roll it out. What is the vision for this? What's the mission for this? What are the core values for this? What's the strategy that we want to take forward on this? And then wrapped around that is, okay, what's the communication Mm -hmm. that we want to share and how, what's the frequency and what's the, the method and all of that? Then wrapped around that is how do you measure your program? What are the metrics associated with it so that you can share it with the executives of the agency and say, hey, you know, we're measuring this and we know, you know we're being successful because we are doing that. So those different components, all of them together, in a constant continual messaging, consistent messaging, help people recognize, hey, this is not just going away. This is not just one of those, one of the things and one and done a project, start and finish. This is a program and it's going to continue to evolve. It's going to continue to improve. And I understand, again, where that roadmap is going, where they're actually trying to get to. So, Yeah. A lot of what you talked about for 
folks if they're looking for a book to read in many ways that espouses things that you've just done. It's like I, the the book that came to mind was Built to Last. Right. Mm -hmm. How do I teach other people? Like you, Ed, were the an expert at telling time. You know, like the the, the clock builder or the watchmakers versus the time tellers. You know, you came in, you know, years ago, started as a time teller. You were an expert time teller. And everybody was amazed. Oh, wow. Ed knows it's like 1207. This is really cool. Yep. Um, but that's the magical thing that you did at Texas is now you showed other people how to not only tell time, but then build, you know, build clocks. Um, and so turn that whole organization into, you know, this clock builders. And so I wanted to kind of highlight that as far as like, hey, if you're looking for a book to read on like some of the things that Ed did. From that cultural transformation piece, yeah, you know, that's no small potatoes. Yeah, it, it isn't, you know, and it really, you know, the whole program, if anything, is really more of an organizational change management thing because mm -hmm. people haven't done this before. People don't know what the title of a technical data steward is or a business data steward or product owner or such. You have to teach them all of those things as part of it going forward. I can't undersell the importance of data literacy. Mm -hmm. One of the things we, was one of the pronged approaches that we worked on was making sure that we could create some educational formats to teach people the core elements of not only the methodology that we're trying to introduce, but the role that you need to take on as a part of success with the methodology. I know that, that my ex-team has done a great job of furthering and developing out the the educational component to this because that's another factor i think not only is it the communication part of it but it's the education part of it uh, in making a successful program go forward you hit on data literacy as one of the linchpins there mm -hmm. and it's almost not talked about enough <laughs> I wish it was. I wish it was talked more, but it it's something that in Lee and I's old team that we mentioned a lot. We have a, a colleague who loves talking about data literacy. So, but for you, you know, why was that, you know, one of the aspects that you and your team or, or eventual team started with? You know, what was the need and the gap that you saw there? And then and then the impact it had on other people once you really established robust literacy processes in education. One of the things I spearheaded with another CDO from New Jersey at the time was to create a state CDO network. Mm. Colorado and Arizona had already had a CDO on board, and both of them were already kind of working towards their uh, the developing of their program. This state CDO network was really helpful because now I'm with colleagues of, uh, of the same level and I'm hearing from Arizona how successful their data literacy, their education program was. And I'm hearing from Colorado why, you know, this is an important part of their business model as well. So, you know, I'd like to say I came up with the idea. All I did was learn from others and what they did and then apply it to Texas and developing something that I think would be um very much usable within the Texas community. Um, I also learned from the private sector individuals. I went to a lot of conferences and learned from private sector who had chief data officers for some time, who had educational programs. 
and I borrowed from some of their ideas as well. Um, so a lot of this stuff that came about was from conversations, networking, relationships, and helping each other be successful. Uh, you mentioned you had Dorman on the call here, who yeah. was the CDO from North uh, Dakota. North Dakota, yeah. Yeah. Um, he, he called me up one time uh, and said, Ed, uh, I, I got to get this, uh, I, I got to create an open data portal um, program here, but I'm not sure where to begin. And we had one since 2014 uh, that I had adopted. So I, I gave him our, our manual, our book, uh, uh, and he just took it and said, hey, do you mind if I use this? I'm like, do whatever you want. I, I don't want to say he just found and replaced Texas with North Dakota, but he, <laughs> he used a lot of it and, and, and was very happy and very appreciative that I was able to support him in the future uh, uh, right there and then. And I said, well, Dorman, in the future, I'll reach out to you for something. So it's a lot of that conversation with other state CDOs and, and their success. California being the size that they were, Florida, you know, we kind of all kind of, we all dealt with similar things mm -hmm. and similar issues with a particular size and scope and geography of what we had to deal with overall. We had a couple of meetings like, uh, you know, conferences for just CDOs and it was just great because you, you're all sitting in a room and you're all listening to each other talk and you're all dealing with the same thing. Different flavors, yeah. but, you know... Uh, it, it to me was a critical component to the success of the Texas program was learning from others and then applying it to how Texas would be able to handle it. That's a wonderful thing. Lee's heard me say this before. If anything from the AI machine and human interface comes about is this transfer learning. We as a human species love to continue to make the same mistakes as other people belabor under, but I can do it differently and mm -hmm. I can do the same thing and achieve a different outcome. Maybe that will be the most positive use of this, these brain um, uh, implants that we'll get in the future <laughs> is that I don't have to relearn or relive all the cuts that you had, Kelly had. That is a wonderful point that, again, could not be underscored enough is that the standing on the shoulders of giants concept that I don't yeah. have to go relearn everything. So you, Ed, went out and got these learnings from other states and were very open to taking the feedback. Mm -hmm. You know, how did that, how have you seen that propagate out, you know, in Texas? The goal was that all these different agencies would eventually collaborate. So how is that going today? Good point. So Senate Bill 475 that was passed in the not last session or the session before, I think, one of the big pieces of that was the that the CDO had a responsibility was to create a forum, a committee mm -hmm. with other agency CDOs and higher education CDOs for the purpose of sharing information and best practices. So right now it's called the DMAC, the Data Management Advisory Committee, and they're doing quarterly meetings. Matter of fact, there's another one coming up next week on, on Monday. So I'm actually participating in it now on the other side of the table, as the CIO, rep, uh, not the CIO, the SOS, Secretary of State representative. So I actually sit in on these meetings. And typically, they were three parts. One was kind of a download from the CDO that talked about what are we doing, either in literacy, open data, or any other aspect of program effort. And, and so that would be the download portion of it. 
The second part of it, we always tried to find another agency, CDO or higher ed, to speak to talk about what they're doing. What are they doing? So one time we had, uh, I can't remember who, come in and talk about their their uh, journey on creating a data catalog hmm. without using a tool, using it, you know, kind of from scratch type of thing. Um, but this is a way for us to kind of partner. You know, it was a lot easier when we did it face to face. But of course, with COVID, things went virtual, and things are now pretty much virtual uh, all the time with this group. But it's a way for people to share their knowledge at that level with others, their peers, and hopefully the light bulb goes off. And after the meeting, the two people connect to get more detail about it so that, you know, the, the person that needs to implement the same type of thing, let's say Texas Tech University or the Comptroller or whoever has done, they can work together offline to, to be able to share knowledge and experience to go with that. So I personally think that these these efforts are really uh, important. Again, I take it from the state uh, group first down to the to, excuse me the state CDO group first to the Texas group, and it, now we even have splinter groups that come off of that. So there is a data literacy work group of people. There is an open data group of people. So as we look at the different groups underneath, if there's a specialty interest in open data, you can go to the open data portal user group and you can be a part of that and share your experience in publishing or creating maps or visualizations or whatever. That's been a very successful effort as well. So all of these things help to expand your knowledge base, expand your contact and network. You know, a brand new CDO, when they were starting to be named by agencies, we felt really bad because they came into this role and a lot of times they didn't have any experience. Yeah. You know, I, I tend to think that, you know, people were, you know, they were walking by the wrong door at the wrong time. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> but, you know, so we created a, a basically a 90 day roadmap for brand new CDOs. What are you going to do first? What's the first thing you should do? What's the second thing you should do? That's an interesting piece. I was just actually about to ask a highly related question to that roadmap. Um, because then you came in, Texas didn't have a CDO, right. and not all agencies had CDOs. So then you have this part where, you know, at DIR, the DIR level and a statewide coordination level, you are trying to teach people how to build clocks. That's right. right. And then now you're passing this clock building down, you know, working with you and yourself and many others establishing this vision. So that, that propagation of clock building, not just at DIR level, but across the, the agencies, you know, you talked about this beautiful facilitation that we can all see that's happened, or those of us who are in Texas can see it happen. Um, and but then there's also the the at the at the um, practitioner level. But then how is that happening at the at the leadership level? What does that look like today? Part of what I did in my role was a lot of speaking engagements mm -hmm. with the leadership level, um, both with the the legislature. And also with executives like the Business Executive Leadership Committee, the BELC, mm -hmm. which is a, a governance program that DIR has set up. I've spoke to those people. So they, individuals, and I, I won't go into the names of them, after the meeting would call me and say, that's really interesting. That's great. Can you come by yeah. my agency and talk to me a little bit further about that? So having those forums available where I was given the opportunity to speak about what we're trying to accomplish and having the 
executives basically listening to this, mm-hmm. they say, okay, I bl- I'm a believer or I'm a half believer and I want you to come here and teach or share or expand or whatever. So I, I think having those those opportunities, again, help to further the cause <laughs> of getting profits, getting people to be a part of the overall understanding of the program and really willing to be, you know, try it out, try it on their own uh, individual agency. Absolutely. And you raised kind of an interesting point there. So in nascent fields like AI, you know, most, you know, I'm 37 and I'm kind of an old man for the field, but <laughs> absolutely not an old man. Um, but a lot of people kind of at that executive level are going to be people, you know, who are, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s. Mm-hmm. A lot of the practitioners are going to be people, honestly, in their 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned the CDOs, you know, wrong door, wrong time, right? People who, you know, maybe reached that executive level but haven't been practitioners of the, of, of the thing because it's too new for them to have really been a hands-on practitioner. How do you bridge that gap between the people who are in charge of the thing having never really done the thing because it's so new versus the people who have done the thing being, you know, too inexperienced in other areas to yet be that executive presence? Well, I I think that the CDO or the individual that you're talking about here, first off, it takes a little, you need to put your ego in check, but you don't know it all. You don't have all the answers. And you have to have a, um, you have to recognize the value and knowledge of the multiple people within the organization, no matter what age or where their background is. So you've got to be able to come in and be open-minded, listen, um, ask the proper probing questions because not everything can be done. You know, there's a limitation of resources, budget, and time. So you've got to be able to kind of maybe right-size the, the, the maybe the opportunity that's being presented to you. But at the same time, you've got to be open and willing to listen to everyone on the team. I remember back when I was working for the Department of Public Safety, I had a staff meeting and uh, one of my employees said something to me and I just kind of took me back a little bit. I was like, and I started to laugh because what she said was absolutely right. Where I was going with it was wrong. And she spoke up and said to me, no, I think you're you're missing the mark here, Ed. And she explained it to me and, and was professional about it. And and uh, she was a younger person as well. And I, I took myself back to a step to think, I don't have all the answers. Now, maybe when I was in my 20s, I did think I had all my answers. <laughs> but now that I'm in my 60s, I, I recognize that, you know, I, I don't know everything at all. And, and I really need others, you know, and I listen to my kids the same way you know they're very intelligent people they've got great careers and you know there's the interaction between us now as adults you know uh, adult children and coming back rather than dad knowing it all and having all the answers don't have them all i don't have a full understanding of it and my three children remind me of that not every day but they do remind me of so Honestly, my cat reminds me of that every day. (laughs) It's amazing the things that happen that humble us. I had a a friend of mine that uh, used to teach parenting classes because their kids were model. You know, they're amazing, did wonderful in school. And then they hit their teenage years. Mm -hmm. And then they realized how much they did not know. And so then the, the parenting class turned into a group therapy 
yep. on, on, oh my goodness, here's all the things that we don't know. So we can all, you know, wallow in our lack of knowledge and, and share and help. There's a wonderful piece that you mentioned there that, again, is we should underscore, which is being open, humbling yourself. And you have that when you have a growth mindset, uh, when you are always ready to learn. So that's always not always easy to get the rest of an organization to, a, to adopt or to go there. So what advice would you provide to others? And, and this could be somebody else as a CDO, but, but could be in a director or a program management position. How do you help a group that might be stuck in their ways mm. start thinking and adopting habits and patterns, you know, where they are ready to humble themselves, listen to outside opinions or to, to go to other agencies or to peers and to learn? Yeah. You know, I think that the, I get back to a specific use case. You, you can always find within an organization an executive, maybe one. Mm -hmm. to, who are more open and willing to try something new. You know, they're, they're less risk averse and they have a pain point. They have a problem. Maybe it's inconsistent reporting. Maybe it's something to do with, you know, their, their data is all over the map and they can't do any reporting. So you look for those opportunities to gain their trust and you also look for those opportunities to be success points and wins for you. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to get everybody in the organization, you know, lining up and saying, this is great, you know, let's go. You're going to have to go and, and win these small little, they're not really battles, but you're going to have to win these small wins. Mm -hmm. Then you're going to be able to take them and you're going to go to the next person on the list who might not be as of supportive, going back to... You know, the guy at the International Trade Banking, he was not supportive. He was sure supportive afterwards. <laughs> but I think that, you know, you get these wins along the way and look for those opportunities. And it takes time. But over time, your success breeds success. And your, you know, the profits, the people who are with you, they'll say, hey, this worked. Look at this. Look what we can do now. And it's almost like, hey, I want one of those too. Yeah, You know, a, a good friend of mine, John Hoffman, uh, used to always say, you know, you don't want to be first in state government, but you don't want to be last. You, <laughs> you know, you want to be able to recognize that the fact is that um, because, you know, once it becomes a great thing and everybody likes it, then it's hard now to get maybe in line because, you know, you, it's there's too much going on. Yeah. But I think that you've got to start small wherever you go in as a CDO. You got to look for those really good partners and find them and then basically propagate from there. You know, it's like planting seeds, you know, mm -hmm. getting out there and getting something in play and then getting success and then communicating the heck out of it. I mean, I'm really talking about what can you do to advertise and get back to marketing and advertising your program and using those wins as ways to convince others to buy in. It's that the whole curve, you know, early adopters, you know, all the way through to, you know, to late adopters. And yeah. You're always going to have those. You have late adopters out there all the time because people, you know, they got other things on their mind or they're, you know, 26 days away from retirement or whatever the case might be. There's always going to be situations where you're not going to convince everybody 
of the importance of what you're trying to do. But if you can get 80, 90% of them, then the rest will either come or they'll end up retiring and somebody else will come in and then you can win them along as well. So, Yeah, you, meant, you mentioned the, the patience and persistence and it's, it's a theme here. Yeah. The other thing that we haven't yet talked about, uh, but has popped up in the stories here, is that with the branding, with naming something, it's helpful from the vision aspect so that you can turn other people into the clock builders for you and for the organization. But also, it's understated how that can also be important for the detractors, because if something's amorphous, it's really easy for them to try to point out the flaws. Right. But if you've named and branded something and now you have a more concise vision around it, it becomes harder for them, but it'll harder for them to find the flaws. Um, and then they actually have to come up with more salient or true facts around that. But then that feeds into our learning. So what, what has been your experience with the detractors once you've named and branded something and what, what does that do to the folks that are disbelievers in what your and in, in your story well you know, one of the things we had an advantage on i think and not every cdo of other states had the advantage and a lot of them talked to me about this and how did you get it done when you get a law in place <laughs> <laughs> laws help <laughs> the laws help tremendously because no longer are the detractors being really they may be quiet detractors yeah but there's a law in place and you have to comply with the law. So they basically now are being, you know, I, I don't like to say using the hammer versus mm -hmm. the carrot, you know, the whole thing in the back. I've never used the hammer on anything. Mm -hmm. but, uh, and my opinion is that if you've done that, then you really haven't had any success. All you've done is just, you know, bully somebody into doing something. So I'd rather go the other route, with, which I've previously talked about with relationships and such. But that's a really important thing, is having law in place, having it signed off by the governor of Texas. And then, you know, like 478, Senate Bill 478, that's a pretty detailed law. I mean, it's a lot of detail in there. We at DIR were uh, asked to contribute some of the language associated with that to the staffers who then take it to the bill author and then it goes through lots of changes and such. But I think laying some of those things together, getting it into a, a situation where there's a, it's a requirement now, helps those detractors move away into the quiet part of their, their careers maybe, or they just, they, they'll do it. They become supporters. You know, I used to say, there's another little analogy I did you know, trying to turn a battleship, mm -hmm. you know, you have, or a boat, say, you have people who are at the front of the boat and they're willing to be, they're really, you know, on board with you and all of that. And and then you have people in the middle of the boat just saying, I don't know if he's going to be around in a year. I don't yeah. know if I really want to do this at all. And then you have people at the back of the boat and they're not only saying, hell no, they're throwing out the anchor. So you've got to be able to try to see if you can't move the people from the back of the boat to the middle of the boat, and then from the middle of the boat, finally, to the front of the boat. So you can get everybody paddling in the same direction. And over time, it happens, but laws help, your brand helps, the, the people that you've supported over the years 
They help because they speak good things of what you're trying to do. Your leadership, my leadership at DIR was excellent. Mm -hmm. uh, every executive director uh, I had there and worked with were extremely supportive and, and spoke up in forums and meetings and always would highlight the successful work that we were doing. Again, without that kind of focal point, you know, I would have still continued to be knocking on doors and, you know, nobody would have answered me. But I think a lot of those things coupled together over the years helped uh, helped to become very successful. And I, I think the other thing, the other bit, just to to wrap a fine point around it on, on things that you said about what makes it successful, small wins in communication, mm -hmm. because it's when you're coming into the new, even if you're excited about the new, the new can be fearful. And it's like, how does this, how does this new work? Um, but then there's also going to be the people that are on the sidelines that might be, you know, trepidatious about the change. And then there's going to be people that's like, that's never going to work. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you, you started, you talked about finding things that are impactful but are small get the wins and then communicating those wins it's amazing you know lee and i talk to this to people that we mentor all the time it's really hard to over communicate hmm. it really is and it's amazing that again we continue to have to learn that that it's hard to over communicate well and, and the communication part is not a natural thing for people no so, I mean, if you have an introverted personality and you're a CDO, it's going to be a harder climb than someone who's more extroverted. Mm -hmm. My wife says that I can walk into a room and she can point to somebody and I can go over and talk to them. Yeah. I don't have any problem going out and engaging people with the communication of anybody. But there's some people that just have an introverted personality. Matter of fact, when other agencies were hiring the position, the executive director would sometimes call me and say, what type of person should I pick? You know, does it, they need to be 100% technical? No, they don't. You know, I think the balance to our opening conversation about having business and operation experience and having technical experience coupled together with, I don't want to say extroverted, but more of an open, um, good communication skills. Mm -hmm. Soft skills are extremely important in this role. You have to be able to stand up and communicate your vision and everything associated with it. And you have to continue to do it over and over and over again. Yeah. I, mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had these conversations with multitudes of, of state agencies in higher education over the years. And you know the, the very successful CDOs that I'm seeing today have that good mix of both technical business and, and communication skills, all of that combined. Yeah, and I think that's an important thing that you've hit on with, you know, since the time that that Gartner study was published and people were starting to realize the importance of the CDO role. The CDO role has gone through several iterations, inflection points, um, but it is, I, I strongly believe, almost all the things that you've mentioned, which is vision, strategy, then getting into the tactics and willing to drive and get the wins. It's marketing, it's communication, i.e. all the things about what builds successful cultures. And, yeah. and you you and others that were have been very good at this role are cultural change makers, you know, leaving behind systems that live, you know, beyond just your tenure. Yeah. So, well, in our culture, you know, how we, we operate, you know, as beliefs and, and, and practices and so forth, 
the term culture, you know, this just carries down from generation to generation. That's how a culture succeeds mm-hmm. or is, is sustainable. In the data world, it's the same thing. Uh, it, it's looking at those practices and looking at those, those best practices and applying that to how we should run our business to become data-driven individuals. Um, it's a little hard. Again, sometimes people don't grasp it. It's a hard to sell it. And, and really, because some people think of it as more, I don't know, it's intangible or it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it just doesn't have a real, you know, it's not a hardcore thing. It is a hardcore thing. You just got to be able to articulate it of why the importance of having, say, a data catalog or having uh, metadata management in, instituted in your, your program. Why, does that, why is that important? Um, I always say that you have to articulate the business value with everything that you do. It's just not the, the technical success components or the tools that you're using or whatever it's going to help you. You've got to talk about the business value because the business people are saying, I've got a lot of things to talk about or think mm-hmm. about. It, you know, you just give me one more thing. What am I going to get out of it? What's in it for me? Right. Yeah, so. it, that is that is a frequent thing that we will discuss with um, CDOs and others, is or or well, just any leader when we're coming in. There is a propensity to think of the technology adoption roadmap as the strategic plan, and it's like, well, no, that thing is sits below, and and the surface point is well, what now can happen. On the on the outcome side, yeah. you know, am I able to you know faster ingest like lab data from all across the state, you know, for monkeypox or the next thing that comes around, and then now my epidemiologists are able to make minute by minute, you know, in, uh, decisions or information that guide policy, you know, versus things that were then six, eight, twelve weeks delayed and then constantly being restated. Yeah. You know what hap- What what capability? So the couldn't agree more on that. Is this getting to an outcome-driven um, roadmap you know, versus that technology roadmap. The technology roadmap just says what I'm going to be able to do. Yeah. And that example, just to pull on that a little bit, so I was actively involved with the COVID-19 response here through the Department of State Health Services and Health and Human Services. I think the the importance of that, when I mean, we were on calls with the governor and and others, and and the importance of data points mm-hmm. and getting information in timely and accurate were huge in making decisions for the state, opening up businesses, opening up schools, mm-hmm. delaying it, whatever. These things helped legitimize what was important and why it was important. Some serious decisions made based on the data from coming from the, the whole COVID event that we worked through uh, several years ago. And that hopefully maybe opened up the eyes of others to say, hey, this is important. What else should we be looking at more closely? We talked about those success things earlier. I, I kind of left that one off, but, you know, it's almost like the guy with the fire, right? It, go back to that. <laughs> yeah. Let no disaster, you know, go bad, go wrong. Yeah. Use it, leverage it in a way to be able to continue to propagate your message going yeah. forward. So. Yeah, communication, 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 right? You can never do it enough. Yeah. Well, Ed, I have got two other questions for you. This has been a wonderful discussion. I think there's amazing things that folks are going to be able to take away from your learnings and heavily appreciate your time today. As we close out, what are some other 
podcasts or other learning resources that you love and that you would love, you know, love to share? From podcast perspective, so, you know, there's one out there, Tech Tables, mm-hmm. that Joe Tachi started up. And I know he's been working on that for about a year. And I, I've, I've been on his show as well. as, And I think learning from others in that method, you know, through a podcast helps. You know, you can put it on and then you're right into work or you can, I mean, there's great ways to be able to pick out one or two pearls out of these things. I mean, not that everything you're going to leverage or use, but one or two pieces that would be extremely helpful. Um, the other one I, I listen to is, you know, the things you should know, <laughs> which is kind of interesting on, you know, it's a expanded to expo- uh, trivia type of things, and but things that are interesting that, I mean, I think some of those elements become back pocket communication starters or things that you can use in, in your discussions with people and building a relationship and such. So I think that's that's kind of a couple like top of my head right at the moment. So and of course this one. I think this yeah. is gonna be a great, you know, further as you develop this more, Sid and Lee, I think this would be really helpful for a lot of people. Well that is the plan and that is the hope. It's funny that you mentioned like the things you should know because it, I, I believe it was Steve Jobs who said this, um, surprisingly so because the man was very egotistical. But um, it said, it's not necessarily that I'm smarter. It's just I have more dots on the board. And so it was a forever, (laughs) nobody would accuse Jobs of not being curious, right? He was very curious and he would connect a lot of different things. And so I think for me in this discussion today, that's just one of the major takeaways from like how you had successes is be humble, be ready to learn and be willing to provide more of the carrot for change you know, which then opens you up to learning, right? Yes. Because if you're coming at it from like thou shalt, you know, you don't learn a lot. No. no. You don't learn a lot. And it doesn't feel good. It doesn't. No. Yeah. It shouldn't. No. So, yeah. But, well, Ed, well, thank you for joining us today. Really appreciate the time. Well, thank you guys very much. I appreciate the time as well. Thank you for listening and being an advocate of the data culture community. Curiosity intersected with data can inform and inspire change for the betterment of all. Let's build cultures to make this happen. If you have a topic, want to be a guest or chat, reach out to me, Sid Atkinson, or my co-host, Lee Harper, on LinkedIn via DM or via the Data Culture Podcast LinkedIn group. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do so anywhere you get podcasts. Be sure to join our LinkedIn group to engage with your fellow data culture changemakers and visionaries. Thanks again for listening.